It's a joy to serve as your pastor and now to have been here 14 years. And um, though it is true, I'm pretty sure most of you don't know everything that goes into the week of a pastor, and that's okay. We try not to talk about it and make a big deal out of it. And sometimes you're just normal. You're at the office. You're doing this, that, and the other administrative type stuff, you know, a couple meetings with people, talking to them, praying with them, helping to point them more in the direction of Jesus in their lives. And other weeks are exceptional. You have your ups and downs, and you have conferences or meetings you attend to try to learn more or see about how we're cooperating with other churches. And there are things that break your heart about being a pastor because you see brokenness in people's lives. And because of your job, you get invited into their lives at a time when they're hurting. And you hurt too. But the other side is you get invited into their lives in the time when there's joy. And you have joy too. And though I keep track of my hours and I always hit 40 plus hours a week, it's not hard to work more than 40 hours when you're a pastor. Pretty much any job these days, I guess. There's things I do that it's like, am I a pastor or am I just a friend? When we have you over for dinner or you have us over for dinner, or when I make a visit to your house, yeah, I might be going as your pastor, but it didn't feel that way. And that's the thing that makes this job feel not like a job because it's about loving one another and about the fact that we are family. And I'm so very thankful for each and every one of you. Thank you, Myra. Thank you, church. Now, I got to pray before I can go on. So let's pray that I can hold this together for a minute here. Let's pray, please. Our Father in heaven, we come to open your word this morning and to see what it is you would have to say to us. And just like our lives have ups and downs and some things we're happy to consider and some things, though we know they are real, we'd rather not deal with. We face that today, the sobering reality of life, the life that we don't see in heaven or hell, but that we can imagine because your word tells us. So God, we pray that you would speak to us today, that we might be willing to love as you love, to sacrifice as you have sacrificed, and to share our lives with others. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're living in a time that doesn't like to talk about the thing I'm going to preach about this morning. You could be called objectionable, offensive, narrow-minded, judgmental, bigoted, and those are just the nice words. And most churches don't want to deal with it either. But this morning, we're going to preach about hell. And we're not going to preach about hell. Well, I'm not preaching it that the lost would be saved, though I pray they will be. I'm preaching it that those of us who are saved would be burdened to tell the lost that it is real. There's a difference, and that's the approach I hope to take. 
As we've considered who's your one and started two weeks ago with this simple question, the one person in your life that God has called you to over this next month to pray for daily and as often as possible share a gospel witness with them and invite them to trust Christ as their Savior, even in this month's time. We've suggested that beyond your prayers, beyond your conversations, you do something simple with them like share a meal, go out with them, have them to your house, spend time together that you might share your lives. You can share your testimony with them, and your testimony doesn't have to be long or fancy. Matter of fact, you can write a few sentences about these four things, what your life was like before Christ, how you needed to come to know you knew you needed to come to Christ, how you actually trusted Christ as your Savior, and then what has your life been like since Christ? The Bible's quite clear that God does not send anyone to hell. That may not be what you think, but I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles now with me to John chapter 3. If you're already in Luke chapter 16, our key text, we'll get there in just a moment. But turn to John chapter 3, please. Beyond John chapter 3, there are many other passages of Scripture. But this one I read to you because we know verse 16. But unfortunately, we often pass by verses 17 and 18. For God so loved the world, John 3, 16... That he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. We can stop right there and say amen, can we not? Amen. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God's purpose was not to condemn people, to send people to hell. God's purpose was that Jesus would come in order that people might know about eternal life and have it in heaven. But look at verse 18. Whoever believes in him, Jesus, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. God condemns no one to hell. We condemn ourselves for our lack of belief in Jesus. Yet what about the people that don't hear about Jesus? What about those that never have the chance? Scripture is quite clear that we are called to tell them. Hence an emphasis like who's your one. We are called to go to the ends of the earth to share the gospel. And why has God not sent Jesus back to take us out of this earth as much of a mess as it is? 2 Peter 3.9 He's not slow in keeping His promises as some understand slowness to be. But He wants everyone to come to us so that we might tell others about Jesus. We've got work to do, friends. And though it may seem unpleasant to talk about a subject like hell, we must talk about it because it is a reality. You may disagree with me. I would tell you to take up your disagreement with God and His Word, not with me. I'm merely trying to accurately report what I believe we see here in today. And we'll go through that in these moments ahead. 
Our scripture memory verse of the month reminds us of our responsibility. And it's Romans 1.16. And we can say it all together. Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Romans 1.16. That same power of God that brings people to salvation is the power of God that can inhabit you if you will let Him in order to share the message of salvation with others. Luke chapter 16, verse 19 and 31 through 31. If you're able to stand with me in the honor of reading God's word, would you do so together now? There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. And send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger And water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things there. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this between us there and you, there is a great chasm that has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here uh, to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if anyone, someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent, he said to him. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Thank you. You may be seated. May God add to the reading of his word. Jesus is telling a parable. We know a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It tells us about things that are natural in order to teach us about things that are supernatural. It points us from what is to what will be. That is what a parable is. So Jesus sets this parable in a way that people in his day and time would know it. Now, not many of us have been to a place where we would see a beggar like this. We have all seen people on the streets asking for assistance when you're In our city, on certain in the neighborhood streets, and certainly if you live or work or go downtown, Lincoln, you see that. But not to the extent of this man, who was in such terrible shape that his body was covered with sores and dogs came and licked him. And he was outside the gate of a rich man. Remember, this is a parable. But the reason Jesus tells it as a parable and the reason it is effective to those people then and us today is we know it's true, don't we? 
So the introduction, if you will, the hook that Jesus sets is with this scene that they would have all seen. Somebody who is wealthy, and he describes him as dressed in purple and fine linen, living in luxury every day. And right outside their gate was this guy who couldn't even attend to his own sores and was begging just for the scraps off of his table. Now, what Jesus is not doing is teaching a parable about socioeconomics or teaching us about socialism. That's not it at all. What Jesus is doing, the point of the parable, is about eternal life. And it's not saying that rich people are bad and poor people are good. That's not it at all. He's merely using this picture of those that were blessed in life versus those that the world would perceive are cursed in life to point out the greater truth. So let's keep that in mind as we go along. Verse 22, the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. Abraham's side, symbolic for Jewish people of in the presence of God. They were children of Abraham. And that's where Abraham is the one that speaks in the parable because Jesus is teaching Jewish people. So that's how they would perceive it. And then the rich man also died and was buried. You've heard it said before that the statistics about death are very impressive, right? One out of every one people dies. We all die. Therefore, we all must be prepared for death. Not just with the fact that you've made out a will, not just with the fact that you have life insurance, but for your eternity in heaven or in hell. And so we come to the points of our text. And the first of these four realities of hell is that hell is painful. Hell is painful. And friends, please know in any of these points, I'm not trying to scare you. I'm merely reporting what the text says. Look at what it says. In hell where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away. And he says, could you just dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue? What's the thirstiest you've ever been? How long were you that thirsty? How much did it hurt? How many things did you dream about wanting to drink until such time as you actually got something to drink? Multiply that times infinity. Those in hell have no way to quench even their thirst. And then because I am in agony in this fire, I don't know that I want to ask because I have a weak stomach, how many of you have ever had a burn before? Yeah, maybe we've had a burn from a curling iron. Maybe you had a burn from a sunburn. Maybe you got burnt worse. What's the worst burn you've ever had and how long did it burn and what did you wish you could do to soothe it? A sunburn goes away in a few days, but imagine every part of your body burning that it will not go away and you will know it won't go away. And then you understand why he says he was in torment. God did not prepare hell for people. He prepared it for the devil and his angels. If You've got your Bible there. Would you turn with me to Revelation chapter 20? Today we are going to look at a variety of scriptures to help make our case. And this, uh, our first one, Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10. Revelation 20 says, And the devil 
who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. You can read that and you say, but wait, only the devil, right? Well, then hell is not real. People don't go to hell. Skip on down to verse 15. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of the life, book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Those verses in between verses 11 through 14 help explain it. That if you have not trusted Jesus as your personal Savior and Lord and had your name written in the Lamb's book of life as Revelation records that book, then you will be thrown into the lake of fire. And it is a place of eternal torment. If you were to read in Revelation chapter 14, verse 11, it says, And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. We have a dear friend who's struggling right now, and part of the reason she's struggling and having psychiatric issues is she's unable to sleep. When you can't sleep for weeks at a time, your brain does terrible things to you. I've seen that just a little bit in visiting with her face-to-face this week. Can you imagine your body feeling like it was on fire, your mouth having a thirst that can never be quenched, and never being able to sleep? Torment may be too kind a word. Hell is painful. There's no way, two ways about it. So we must tell people, we must share lovingly, kindly, consistently that God loves them and they don't want to go there and we don't want them to go there. The next point on your outline is that hell is isolated. Verse 23 says, he looked up because they were far away. And verse 26 says, and besides all this, between us there's a great chasm that you can't go from one side to the other. Now, we think about hell as being down there, you know, and we think about heaven as being up there. But as it is, it's a different, it's a realm or a reality that we only get glimpses of the supernatural love, most of us in our life. I'll never forget when I was a missionary in South Africa, and uh, the missionaries I worked with, Ron and Karen Lomax, they had three kids. And one time, for some reason, I had to go pick up Kelsey from preschool in the town nearby. Kelsey's three years old at this point. She was a very uh, sharp young lady. I'll never forget one time she said, my mommy's a clever girl. And I'm like, okay, clever. Um, But so I'm talking to Kelsey, uh, you know, as you do when you pick up a kid from school. And uh, because it's just she and I in my my little uh, Toyota Corolla car. And I said, Kelsey, what happened at school today? She said, well, I got in a fight with the kids that pray to the devil. I said, what? I mean, here's this innocent little three-year-old with big cheeks. She had great cheeks, mind you. I said, you got in a fight with the kids that pray to the devil? How do you know they pray to the devil? She says, well, they have brown skin, not like black African people. It's kind of orangish brown skin. And she, in her seat, she says, they bow over and pray like this and like this. I said, you mean Muslim people? Nobody told her that. I said, Kelsey, did anybody tell you they're praying to the devil? She says, no, I just figured since they're praying to the ground, they're praying to the devil in hell. Since we pray, we talk about God in heaven. I'm going, you're a clever girl too for three years old, Kelsey. Kelsey's understanding aside, hell is not in the ground and heaven is not in the sky. 
Hell and heaven, however, are separated by a chasm or a gulf that is greater than anything we can understand. Theologians would even debate if there is a way that people in hell can see what is in heaven, like this parable illustrates. But that's the subject of another sermon. We can see, however, that hell is real, and our next point on our outline takes us there. That hell is real. Verse 27 and 28. He says, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house. For I have five brothers. Warn them so that they will not also come to this place. What does Abraham say? They have Moses and the prophets. Hell is real. And I want to help make that point by asking you to come back with me to Matthew. So let's go to Matthew, a few pages to the left. Matthew chapter 5, let's start. I want us to consider just the words of Jesus. We could, throughout the entire Bible, exhaust you with references to hell that prove its reality. But just a few words of Jesus, not too far from the pages we're in right now. Matthew chapter 5, verse 22, the first one, you can write that one down. Jesus says, but I tell you, Then anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Jesus isn't telling a parable there. He's straight up saying, beware of your choices. Beware of your sinfulness, of how you live your life. Turn a few pages over to Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Matthew 10, 28. Jesus says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. God is who he's talking about. And hell as a reality is what he is talking about. Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13 in verse 50. Jesus says, and throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing, a fiery furnace. The best analogy they could come for with what hell was like was a fiery furnace. Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, in the midst of the parable of the sheep and the goats, yes, it's a parable, but then Jesus explains the parable, Matthew 25, 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell is real. Come back, one more passage of scripture, Mark chapter 9, a few more pages to your right. Mark chapter 9, verse 43. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye and then to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, everyone will be salted with fire. Jesus is speaking in a hyperbole about cutting off your hand, your foot, or plucking out your eye. But he's making it quite clear that hell is real and a body part is not a sacrifice compared to what eternity in hell is like. Hell is real. Your fourth point here is that hell is discoverable. Back to our 
main passage today. Luke chapter 16, verse 29. Abraham said they have Moses and the prophets. And then the rich man says, but send someone to the dead, from the dead, then they'll repent. And Abraham repeats, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophet, they will not be convinced if someone will rise from the dead. He's giving us an example, friends. Some of us feel like, and even some lost folks say, well, if I saw a miracle or if God did fill in the blank, they're testing God when they do that, by the way, then I would believe. But God is saying, and Jesus is saying right there, as God in the flesh, uh-uh, it's my word that they have that spells out the reality of life, that spells out eternity in heaven or in hell and points out here's what sin is and here's what righteousness is and they must pay attention to my word. And who carries God's word to people that don't come to church? Can you raise your hands? You and I do. We may be the only Bible people read. It's a cliche, but it is true. Hell Your fifth point there is hell, and I don't want to go. I don't know about you. I don't want to go. I don't want anybody I know to go, yet sometimes I am very lax in my understanding about that. And even though it's isolated and real and discoverable and we don't want anyone left out, sometimes we live a life so focused on our stuff and the temporal things that we forget that eternity in hell is real. And we have a responsibility to share the gospel with others so that they won't go there. First John 513 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. If you're here today, chances are probably pretty good that you have trusted Christ Jesus as your personal Savior and Lord. You are a Christian. You are a Christ follower. And if you were to die today, you would go to heaven, not hell. But you're still here today in order that you might tell those that are on their way to hell that they are. Not to beat them up with it. Maybe not even to mention it. You don't want to be the guy like the fellow I used to work with that anytime anybody would do anything wrong, he'd say, oh, you shouldn't curse like that. You're going to hell. Guess how many friends he had. Nobody wanted to listen to that guy. Nobody wanted to be friends with that guy because he was busy beating him over the head with the Bible. And although what he said was true, truth in that manner is not helpful. You need to lovingly, kindly, as a friend, share the gospel with your one and with anyone God tells you of. The last point there in that section is, what's my view of hell? Do you believe this parable? Do you believe in the picture, in what scriptures, the very few that I shared and others that you may have read? If you don't yet, well, here's what I'm going to tell you to do. Go to your Bible, if you have an old school Bible, and in the back there's a concordance, and look up all the scriptures on hell. Read them. Read all the footnotes to all the scriptures on hell. Read them. Maybe do a Google search. Top verses on the Bible on hell. Read them. Read the context around them. Let God by his Holy Spirit impress you beyond a shadow of a doubt that hell is real. And if it is real, you could not rest knowing that men might go there. That we would live our lives differently.
Who is your one? Who are you, knowing the reality of hell, going to share the gospel with? There are seven types of good in hell. And I say this not to be tricky, but because even now your mind is making excuses about why you wouldn't or shouldn't or don't need to share the gospel with lost people in your life. And so I use this device of good in hell to try to get your attention. The first one is that there are good people in hell. You and I know them. We looked at their lives. They were people that had good values, maybe even godly values. They may have had good character. They may have done good things. They may have been blessed in this life with things that we perceive are good, like the rich man in this story. He had a lot of wealth, and so maybe he worked really hard to gain all his wealth. And that's a good thing, right? Maybe he employed lots of other people to gain his wealth. That's a good thing, right? But without Jesus as your personal Savior and Lord, you're in hell whether you're good or not. Remember what the Bible says about our good, that our good is as, a, as filthy rags compared to the righteousness of God. Goodness is not going to get you to heaven. Only Jesus. The second point there is that there is good vision in hell. I use that about verse 23, that he could see what was going on. Though we may be deceived in life, when you get to heaven or when you get to hell, there will be no more deceit. All the lies we tell ourselves about, oh, it'll be okay, or it's all right, or that person's a good person, will go away because it will be a stark contrast of reality. The reason we preach a sermon like this today is to beg me, to beg you to understand the reality of hell that you might not let anyone you know go there without trying, praying, and giving your life to them that they might trust Christ. The third point there is that there are good prayers in hell. Verse 24 really was a prayer. He called him Father Abraham. He's praying to Father Abraham, symbolic of God, right? Have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger. That, he's crying out to Father Abraham, symbolic of God. You know people that when they get in a jam, they call to God. Not just as a curse, but honestly call to God. The fourth point, there's good memory in hell. There's communication, there's memory. He said, remember your lifetime. You received good, but Lazarus received bad things, but now he's comforted and you're in agony. There's some that may teach a theory called annihilationism. And annihilationism basically means when you're dead, you're dead. I mean, you're just a physical being. You don't have a spirit. You don't have a soul. Therefore, you know, you're just going to compose to dust. Why do we even need to put you in a casket inside a vault inside the ground? Because, you know, you're just dead. You're going back to nature. It's the idea that the human soul is not immortal. And it asserts that God will eventually destroy wicked, well, the next step in annihilationism, destroy the wicked, leaving only the righteous ones to immortality. But that's not what the Bible teaches. There is a difference between heaven and hell and how we live our life and the choice we make in life determines it. The fifth good thing in hell is that there's good theology in hell. Now, I'm not trying to be mean-spirited. 
I'm not trying to point a finger and yin, yin, yin at anybody that has been banished to eternity in hell. But if you did not understand heaven and hell and life, you will in death. The sixth point that's good in hell is there good priorities in hell. A desire to share with others. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. The rich man in this parable did not have such priorities in life, but in death, in torment, in pain, in fire, in hell. His priorities were different. The final point is that their good intentions in hell. He intended for his brothers to know. But intentions don't save. Actions save. Your outline says that hell is full of good. I need God. That's the next point on your outline, that hell is full of good. There are good prayers, there are good people, there are good intentions, there are good priorities. But good doesn't save you. Only God saves you. It's by grace through faith, not by any good works that you're saved. You need God. Remember what John 3.16 says, if you believe Him, you will be saved. It's not about our actions or our good works, it is about a step of faith. So your final question, the final point on your outline today is who will I seek to keep from hell? Knowing what we know about hell, reading even a small fraction of the scriptures about hell that I brought to our attention in these minutes this morning, will you work to keep others from hell? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, your word defines reality for us. And sometimes it's a reality we'd rather not talk about. And it tells us what is right and wrong, what is sinful and what is righteous. It tells us about heaven and hell. And clearly defines that those who have not trusted Christ Jesus as their Savior and Lord during this life, will not have eternity in heaven. So, Father, as we're burdened this morning, would we commit ourselves to you to pray daily, even minute by minute, hour by hour, for people in our life that are lost, to share a gospel witness with them, to invite them to consider eternity with Jesus. That you would keep us from making any excuse, keep us from the fear of men, and embolden us and empower us with your spirit that we might share the good news of love and hope and eternity in Jesus. So God, as we need to confess that this morning, we will do that even now. And God, as we need to come to this altar this morning because of our burdens and their greatness, we will do that even now. But God, there might also be the person here today that knows that they are lost, 
And if they were to die today, they'd go to hell and be in eternal torment. Would they walk down this aisle as soon as we begin to pray or sing and commit their heart to Jesus? We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.